Chapter Seventeen of His First and Last Appearance by Francis J. Finnish J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Seventeen: An Old Friend Appears on the Scene Again, and the Audience is Treated to Its First Pleasant Surprise. During the hour and a half of waiting in the little room, the professor was, as the saying is, on pins and needles. One would think, looking at him, that it was to be not Philip's but his first appearance. He paced the room, he bit his fingernails, he tousled his hair till it stood up a bristling plume. At intervals he would put on his false beard, and after an impatient survey in the mirror, remove it. Now and then he made an attempt at conversation, but his words were incoherent. He would begin six or seven sentences and leave them all incomplete. If the professor is ever required to finish all the sentences he began that night, it will go hard with him indeed. Once or twice he took out his beads, they rattled in his fingers, but he could not pray. Och Gott, I am a willing, he burst out after the second attempt. Mary and Filippo all this time was perfectly tranquil. Beyond admiring himself at intervals of five or ten minutes in the mirror, he was content to sit cross-legged sucking an orange or examining the pictures of a juvenile magazine which the professor had thoughtfully provided. The room was so far from the stage that but few distinct sounds reached their ears. The voice of the lecturer could just be heard. Now and then a light clapping of hands. The audience was not demonstrative, broke the monotony. When the first singer's voice was heard, Himmelstein opened the door a few inches, previously putting on his disguise and placing Philip where he could not possibly be in a drought. "'It is good,' he commented. "'But wait, they will see.' After the song, the door was carefully shut, the false beer removed, to be put on again when the time came for the next musical number. About half-past nine o'clock, there was a tap at the door. "'You're in,' chattered the professor. "'You are to come next,' said a voice without. "'Get your singer at the wings and be ready.' "'So, now, Mary and Filippo, come and say nothing. I will put you on a wing and will myself go to the piano. Where did I tell you to stand?' Three feet back of the footlights and in the middle of the stage. And when are you to come out and bow? When the lecture man says, I have now the pleasure of introducing to you the great boy soprano, Master Marion Filippo. Then what do you do? Well, I just walk out, and when you play the introduction, I begin to sing. So, now quick, keep your mouth closed until you begin to use your voice. The usher, who had been waiting outside, put in his head at the door and said, Pardon me, but there is no time to lose. Professor, if you go down to your piano, I will see to the boy. So, well, good-bye, Phil, Marion. God bless you. And the old man, wringing the boy's hand with an energy which caused the young singer to wriggle and wince, staggered away. What's the matter with him, anyhow? asked the usher as he conducted Philip from the room. Anything wrong with his head? He's the craziest-looking loon I've seen in a long time. He's just excited, said Filippo, tranquilly. He's always that way when there's any music to be sung, but tonight he's worse than usual. What's the use of getting excited about a little bit of a song? It will be over in five minutes. Do you see any use, sir? Can't say I do, replied the usher with a grin. But you know, most people are more or less self-conscious when they have to appear in public. It isn't right to be selfish, remarked Philip oracularly. Oh, there's the lecturer. 
he continued as the usher stationed him beside a wing. And, and... Philip rubbed his eyes and stared again. Why? he gasped in delighted astonishment. If it isn't Mr. John Dunn. Do you know him? whispered the usher. Know him? I guess I do. He's one of my great friends. We had an oyster supper together about five days ago. Oh, he's just a daisy. If Isabel knew I was going to sing for him, she'd be delighted. I wonder why the professor didn't tell me it was Mr. John Dunn. In justice to Professor Himmelstein, it should be explained that he had never seen the lecturer during all the negotiations. The name John Dunn, too, signified nothing to him. But when he took his seat at the piano in the orchestra and looked up, he was as much astonished as Philip had been a moment before. So this was Mr. John Dunn, the very man who had taken Philip a chance into Conroy's on the 17th of December. An almost overpowering access of fear came upon the old man. He glanced furtively toward the other end of the theater, as though he were meditating a flight. There were three policemen at the door, and the vestibule was fairly crowded with young men. The house itself was full. Every seat and every box was occupied. Seldom if ever had a more refined, more select audience gathered in Pap's theater. Having taken in all this in that one wild glance, Himmelstein pulled off his dark glasses and stared at them, intently, holding them the while within an inch of his nose. A few of the younger people in the front seats tittered, but the professor heard not and continued to scrutinize his glasses with a scowl, which, in combination with his shaggy beard, gave him the aspect of a villain in a three-volume novel. Under all that apparent fierceness there quaked a much terrified heart. John Dunn, he reflected, knew Philip, and Philip knew John Dunn. There would be a recognition, there would be an explanation, and the end of it would be that Professor Himmelstein, a man hitherto of spotless reputation, would be clapped into jail, and every journal in the country would announce in glaring headlines the marvellous kidnapping of Philip Lachance by Henry Himmelstein, Professor of Music. It is the way of the transgressor. It is the punishment of God. Perhaps it is just. Well, if Philip sing well, I am willing to go into the jail, for I have left my life. Thus muttered Himmelstein to himself, as the lecturer was giving what was evidently the peroration of his lecture. Finally, he came to a pause and bowed. A wave of enthusiastic murmuring rippled through the audience, succeeded by a clapping of hands, a trifle more vivacious than could have been expected from these local ver de vers. The Christmas sentiment, touched as it is with all that is sweetest and loveliest in human life, had been stirred within them. And now, ladies and gentlemen, pursued the lecturer, I have reserved as a fitting end to this evening, devoted to Christmas and the Christ child, a number, which I have been given to understand, will be the most memorable thing of this entertainment. In Catholic France, Christmas to many, and many at heart, would not be Christmas, were they to fail hearing Adolf Adams' Noel. Some few days ago I happened to overhear a little boy singing a stanza of the sweet and most touching melody. He sang it as though he had been taught of some glorious angel. I made friends with the little fellow, who, I learn, returned to New York, his native city, two or three days ago. Now it was to this boy's singing that this evening's entertainment is due. His sweet voice filled me with all the Christmas memories of my whole life. All the love and tenderness and affection proper to this holy and joyful season came back to me, if I may so express myself, in one single wave of emotion. 
After leaving the boy, it occurred to me that I could do nothing better than voice, if possible, my own feelings, my recollections, my readings connected with Christmas and song and story. And so it came about through the inspiration of a little child that you and I, ladies and gentlemen, have thus pleasantly come together tonight. There was another murmur of applause. In arranging my lecture, continued Mr. Dunn, I resolved, if possible, to get some boy soprano to sing Noel. Not the boy I heard singing it, because, as I learned, by chance, he left for New York two days after my meeting him. Being called away from town on important business, I could not attend to the matter myself, but I put it in the hands of a musical agent. At first, he could not find anyone who, in his opinions, could do justice to the song. But at the eleventh hour, and after I had, not without a struggle, concluded to omit Noel, he found just what was wanted. A friend of his, from New York, Professor Himmelstein, told him that he would secure the services of a boy who, in his opinion, was the greatest boy soprano in the United States. Twenty-six hours after this conversation, Himmelstein telegraphed from Chicago that he had got the boy, together with his teacher, Professor Franz Schumann. It will be the young soprano's first appearance. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now the pleasure of introducing to you the great boy soprano, Master Marian Filippo. At the name, Philip wondered very much over some of the things just said, stepped out from behind the scenes, and, with eyes open to their widest and fastened intently upon Mr. Dunn, advanced to the middle of the stage. At sight of the little boy with a soft, childish face and total lack of self-consciousness, there was a succession of ohs and ahs from the balcony down to the orchestra circle. The little darling came from a lady in tones clearer than she intended, and then the greatest applause of the evening awoke the echoes of the magnificent building. Mr. Dunn, meanwhile, looked at Philip, started slightly, and, with a self-control which did him credit, turned to his reading desk and drank off a glass of water. Philip, unconscious of the audience, walked directly up to him, and with his confiding smile, said, "'How do you do, Mr. Dunn?' and put out his hand. The applause that had begun to die away awoke again. It looked very pretty, very naive to these people, who knew nothing of Marion Filippo's acquaintance with Mr. Dunn, to see the young soprano thus paying his respects in public to a man they all knew and loved. "'I will see you after the song, Philip,' whispered Mr. Dunn in return, pressing the boy's hand warmly. "'Now go, my boy, and do your best.' Mr. Dunn retired, puzzled, wondering. Philip turned and, advancing, bowed, and Himmelstein, whose hair was now more savage in appearance than his beard, struck the opening chords. With his hands behind his back, his head erect, Philip glanced smilingly about the house. To him they were all friends, and in answer to that smile there was scarce one in the audience who did not return it, with nods and bows and eyes that told the friendship and goodwill thus suddenly evoked. End of chapter 17